Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play.
Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And it's a very exciting show because joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 92 is composer for Little Bleak... Little, oh, God, what an f- excellent flub that was. <laughs> you have to keep that, though, because it's so good. Oh, it was on, Little Bleak... Little Blig Planet. Yeah, let's, let's let's rename the game. That's easier than editing. Yeah, podcast. yeah, yeah. If you could have a word with the guys. Uh, composer for Little Big Planet and Tearaway and some other things that we'll hear about. It's only Kenny Young. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. Known professionally as Kenneth C.M. Young. And probably that's because sometimes you're confused with Kenny Young, the uh, the, the the composer of, uh, the co-composer of Under the Boardwalk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's yeah. that guy. There's also a Kenneth Young who's a conductor from New Zealand who has numerous right. albums out. So, yeah, whenever I'm being credited, I always insist on putting my ridiculous two <laughs> metal initials in there, which is very formal. It's a bit odd, but it's nice. that's it's a name I was born with. Yeah. So you know, it keeps. So your parents happy. call you Kenny, uh, only when I've been naughty, in which case I'm definitely Kenneth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen sense. that much these days, fortunately. Now that I'm supposedly an adult, but yeah, that's. Have you ever? Do you still ever get calls for the conductor or the uh, the still active uh, and living <laughs> uh, classic composer of uh, that tunes for people like Kenny happened. Rogers? Never oh, really? Never happened. No, no one's ever said, "Hey, love your, <laughs> love your work," ah, and then and love then under the boardwalk. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that they get harassed all the time with requests for, you know, <laughs> yeah. gaming related shenanigans and are really annoyed. Possibly but, does happen. You all come up on, on Google uh, when, when one types in Kenny Young. You do get a surfeit of Kenny Young's and they're all musical. So <laughs> yeah. what, what does this say about nominative determinism? Yeah, if you, if you want your, your, uh, your child to be musical, call them Kenneth Young. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of whatever your surname is. Or, or gender, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, who cares? Yeah, not worried about that. I, I, I made a pact with a friend many years ago. Uh, neither of us have children still. Um, we're both well into our 40s now and probably isn't going to happen, but you never know. But we made a pact that whoever has a, a child first, boy or girl, they're going to be called Beppo. Uh, <laughs> So that may be one of the reasons why neither of us has had children. Absolutely, that's keeping the pressure off, or the pressure stuck. on. Yeah, 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 very much so. <laughs> uh, so it's genuine pleasure to have you on. I think um, the the Cana Rinse team numbers uh, eleven people, including myself. And I think I'm, I'm I haven't asked everyone, but I'm pretty sure everyone on the team is a fan of your work. Um, oh, well, that's nice to hear. We've covered uh, Little Big Planet one and two on the Kane and Rinse podcast and Tearaway, uh, and there's a lot of love. Um, we may have even featured uh, flying in the face of copyright laws, as everyone does. Uh, we may have even featured some of your work before, uh, but don't hold that against us. So I we've. Prom- I promise uh, I won't. I should say, yeah. The yeah. Um, I hadn't heard the uh, Little Big Planet episode until the other night. I was mm. I was just um, catching up on. On, on the Kane and Rinse stuff and uh, that one had completely passed me by the the Terry one like I shared that with everyone on the team oh brilliant uh, thank at you at the time because like I was just I was just sort of tragically searching Twitter for any mentions of the game yeah yeah you know yeah. looking for love uh, in, in the social network sphere and um, and that's what, that's where I first came across uh, Kane and oh, Rinse right. and, oh, excellent yeah. and so and, uh, and it was it was really great because it's actually it's quite unusual to get you know that kind of unfiltered 
uh, honest feedback because um, obviously fan yeah. mails all inevitably either it's polarized to be either completely sycophantic yes. or it's just deeply horrible yeah, <laughs> it's one, right. one of the two those are, those are your two bits of feedback you get from the internet and to actually just hear people discussing it in a way where you know it would probably be bad for you guys to think that the people that make the games are necessarily listening because it might make you too self-conscious but you should know wow. that <laughs> Yeah, but, no, we like it actually. Um, we've had we've had quite a lot of um, feedback from developers who we know listen, um, yeah. and they've always, but even when we've been quite critical, they've always been really appreciative of exactly what you say there to have some measured and and thought through critique rather than either outpourings of of love or or absolutely and the classic fact it's, internet it's, hatred. It's balanced as well in the sense that there's, there's enough of you on the podcast to sort of uh, get a spread yeah. of different opinions, which is great. And um, but yeah, no, it was really it was really fascinating for the team to to hear that, and we all we all enjoyed it. So 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 thanks for that. Um, I oh. don't know if anyone else at Media Molecules heard the Little Big Planet episode. I guess because that 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 was that was a few years ago now still, but obviously a few years after uh, both the games that Media Molecule had worked on came out. Yes, so yes. so that maybe went under the radar, but um, maybe yeah, that that's I how I shall we mention roll. it to them. I shall mention it to them. Yeah, please do. Um, obviously, Sumo's currently got lbp in hand yes, um yep, yep. and and maybe the guys have heard in too much about uh floaty jumping and <laughs> <laughs> maybe they don't want to hear all that again it's yes, only certain might... people in the team who that might be a sore point for. <laughs> yeah sure uh but we also talked about the astonishing um levels of uh user interaction with that game the 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 amount of content that ended up being available and this ties in with the tune we opened the show with of course because as you as you pointed out to us like if there's one piece of your music one piece of your work that has been heard more and for longer than any other (laughs) piece it is that pod piece from little big planet it does it's not something i dwell on often but i suppose just when you know i have picked a few tracks of my own that that i like I, I don't know I, it, I, these are these are some of my favorite tracks for sure the ones that i've picked that i've written yeah. but um they're also it's just you know i, I guess thinking like, why am i picking this and this one it's hard to pick one bit of music that represents uh certainly the first little big planet game and if you were going to pick one it would inevitably be the the uh the go team track that that was licensed ah, for the game because yes. it was absolutely sort of synonymous with the game it was yeah. um and you know it worked brilliantly um but for me in terms of the original soundtrack all of the all of the music was generally written for you know a specific theme in the game, whereas this track it had the sort of difficult task of trying to sort of represent the the, the project because it's the menu music yeah. and. In most games, you don't spend that much time in the menu. You, you, you it's something mm. you sort of tolerate and go through in order to the, get to the meat of the the experience. But in Little Big Planet, it's a little bit different because, of course, you that's where you're choosing maybe the next level you're going to visit from the community. Um, so you tend to spend a bit more time in there. You're in there quite a lot. But as a result of that, yeah, that f- never mind the sort of millions of copies that Little Big Planet sold. Mm. It. In, in, a, in a play experience of Little Big Planet, you're just you're hearing that track <laughs> over and over and over again. So I don't know how many hundreds of millions of times it's been heard by humans on on yeah. planet Earth, but it could be over a billion. I don't know. It's wow. like it's yeah. just like there's no way of yeah. quantifying that. But it's it's just it's kind of that's humbling and weird to, to think that something that I've made has sort of been working on people's 
subconscious to that extent. Oh yeah, and uh, looking at the the comments under under the the track on YouTube and places like that, and and knowing mm. my own feelings, it's I guess it's like ten years since you wrote it now, and it's nearly it's like nearly nine years since people first heard it. Yeah, and it's now nostalgic to a lot of yeah. people. And in, but in a weird sort of way, the track was like intended to be nostalgic. Yeah, sure. even from day one, because Little Big Planet it does have that kind of. Um, it's obviously got the sort of nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies kids TV show aesthetic mm. going on, and so that's why, like in the in the in the Earth track, so there's three bits of music I should say. Yeah, really, this is a cheat to choose because it's actually three tracks. It's got uh, it's interactive music in the game, and it's context sensitive. So when you first. Uh, enter your pod you then turn on your pod computer which of course is the little playstation 3 controller and then you mm-hmm. get the drum beats and then depending on whether you're looking at the the, the earth which internally we called the craft earth because it was sort of you know handcrafted with made from felt uh, and then there's the the moon which is like the community aspect and then there was the info moon for some reason there was another moon early in development that was actually a fridge it was called the info oh. fridge uh, and so the music was different at that point because the, the info moon music it, one of the things I like about it is you'll hear that's that's the third track you get to in the, in the version I've made which is uh, it sounds the synthesizer I've used this kind of sounds a bit corky which yeah yeah it, it, you know but you know when you like pulling a cork out of a uh, a bottle you get that kind of right um the synthesizer's got a little bit of that going on and so that's why it sounds the way it does um and yeah so there, there's there's many things I could say about this bit of music but the fundamental one is that it kind of tries to represent the project and all the mm. things that you can get up to in little big planet and there is an element of nostalgia in there the other main theme running through it all is alongside the slightly sort of intentionally cheesy i should say uh, electronic drum beat mm-hmm. um, it's meant to be naive to represent the sort of you know naivety and handmade childishness of the whole project yeah the wonder um, of it yeah. exactly um but also there's this idea of communication and so because the pod is your your method of interfacing with um the world of little big planet and all the community and all the community levels there's you hear in the background alongside the drum beat you've got uh, like you can hear mobile phone interference mm. there is um telephone sounds uh dot matrix printer um there's all kinds of historical old stuff that i didn't even know existed like there's a teletype machine which is like a little paper printer router yeah and there's uh, yeah all some kinds of beeping stuff morse code absolutely yeah which um some doesn't fans, say anything rude no 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 it doesn't but <laughs> the interesting thing is if people had decoded it because they're like this has got to be, be mean something and it's it was just a sound effect of a library right. that i pulled out and so it's something to do with shipping <laughs> it's really nice. dull i wish i had been clever enough to encode that but yeah it's uh it's it was a difficult thing to write and the one of the reasons i didn't give it to uh, one of the other composers i was working with was it just felt mm. like it would be hard to communicate what this bit of music needed to do so I, that's why i did it myself basically and, uh, so you the, the the aesthetic was all locked in when you were writing this presumably but you didn't did, were you were you in any way conscious of like how much time people were going to spend necessarily looking um, at, at this screen not to the same extent because you don't like even if you're trying to make something good, you don't think it's necessarily going to turn into the amazing... Like, you know, no one had any idea that Little Big Planet would be as big as it was. We were just trying to make the, the best game that we could. Yeah. Um. So, no. If, would I have changed things if I'd known that? Possibly. But, mm. I mean, I took... I, I was taking into account the fact that it would be heard a lot into account. Um. You know, it's... It's interesting. I think it's quite hard to strike a balance 
between something that is quite overt and it is quite it's no it's no it's definitely not it's not fully background music you know it's not ambient and trying not to be there it's quite yeah. in your face mm. and yet it's somehow certainly for the craft earth i tried to make that not too annoying um i think generally people are probably spending in the region of um anything between 30 seconds and a minute choosing their next level mm. and if they're messing around in their pod then they're probably not on the computer so they won't be hearing the music so i felt like the balance there was was about right um yeah. and certainly i'm sure there's people who hate it just because they heard it so much but generally speaking yeah like you're saying in like youtube comments and stuff they tend to be pretty positive so mm. i think it was successful and yeah. uh the the version that was in Little Big Planet two, which is essentially kind of the same, but kind of updated a bit to be a bit more sci fi ish to fit in with the aesthetic in that game. Um, I don't think it works quite as well. Um, I think maybe acoustic instrument instrumentation in the first version is a bit softer, mm -hmm. uh, more uh, gentle than when you start introducing a lot more synthesizers and digital elements. It starts to become a little bit more ear grating, and so. But that was the aesthetic, so there was nothing I could do about that, really. But um, yeah. So is is the guitar like hand plucked on the on the on the original track? Is that you? Oh yeah, playing, that's or is me. It, yeah, that right. is me on my guitar uh, with rusty old strings to get that authentic nice. handmade sound. Same guitar that's on some of the Tearaway tracks. Right. Um, it's a guitar I've had since I was a teenager. Um, that I bought in America. It's a very nice Gibson. Um, that's good to know. Yeah, you know, just for anyone who's a guitar nut. <laughs> Yeah, I should say actually, and and this will prove that that we uh, we don't always have to lean uh, on on our uh, on our connections. Um, there is a connection between uh, between this very podcast and uh, Little Big Planet One, which is that Jay, who's editing this show, uh, who uh, he is married to uh, Kai Fukami Taylor, who was one of the percussionists with the Go Team. Uh, yeah, back, yeah. Back so that then. was one of the things that blew my mind listening to the uh, mm. the LBP podcast, uh, Ken Rest podcast was. was that little factoid i had no idea <laughs> yeah no, it's, it's super uh, cool and it, it's 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 weird how small the world is it is <laughs> in that regard strange world yeah uh, crazy. we live in <laughs> now uh you've also of course as we do uh brought some uh tracks that influenced you or you just like um you can so, tell us more about the specific yeah, reasons i kind of it's an interesting one because i i started to think about which bits of music i might pick and then i realized that you know, I was picking stuff that inevitably other people would pick because they're just, you know, indisputably great bits of game music, which everyone loves. And so yeah. I was thinking, don't do that. <laughs> and so I, I tried to think of some other criteria for how would how would I pick a bit of music? Um and these are all uh, these are all debuts on we've we've been going as you can tell oh, really? 90, 92 uh, none of these have been picked before so Sweet. good job. So yeah. in a way these are very personal tracks because the way I've picked these is these are bits of music that are stuck in my head <laughs> yeah and won't leave <laughs> so they're earworms they're they're so and here's a very literal example but a, a couple of months ago i was doing the dishes and it, it was it was it was the it was the intro theme but the main theme from wing commander 3 popped into my head and i don't know why you know it's just but it's one of those ones that comes to me maybe uh, I, don't, I have no idea how often these things are. I don't know if, if I don't. I, I'm pretty sure I hadn't had that in my head for a good few years. And for some reason, maybe it's because I was on a mission 
to get the dishes washed. <laughs> this militaristic march came in there to score the experience. I don't know. I can't. You were understand. being chased by a large cat. <laughs> I, it's entirely possible. Who knows? So, like you know, it's inexplicable why the brain does that. All we can really say is that that is a bit of music that, for whatever reason, perhaps through repetition, I think that's definitely an aspect with all these tracks. And you know, game music in particular uh, does tend to be heard a lot. You know, you could talk about that with you know with the pod music we were just talking about there. So it is repetitive. You do hear it a lot, and that's a challenge for composers to get that balance right. So I've heard this stuff a lot, but also I do like it as well. So I haven't just picked stuff that's repetitive and annoying is going to get stuck in everyone's heads. Mm. I think it might do, but for whatever reason, these are games I also enjoyed. So I think these are bits of music that mean something to me. And certainly when I hear these bits of music, I immediately am transported back to those gaming experiences. That's um, ideal. That's what the show's all about in a way. Awesome. Uh, so Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, uh, sometimes, as you say, we just pick tunes because we love the tunes. Sometimes we haven't even played the game. We've just got the, you know, we've ended up with the soundtrack. But I think <laughs> the really special ones are the ones where you, as, you know, people will have with, with the, the pod tune there, like people will have memories and yeah. and, uh, and associate times with it. So Definitely. were you playing SimCity 2000 back when it came out in 94? Did you have a nice PC? And So I think... My my first PC was so I tell you what here's my first memory <laughs> of entering computer game because I, I didn't have a console as a as a kid no, other than right. a hand me down um, it's a Philips Video Pack two it was like because oh, yeah. the, the Magnavox Odyssey was the first console which was completely silent <laughs> didn't have any audio output it was kind of yeah, a Pong right. clone did various games as long as it was Pong it did various games yeah. the sequel to that was the, the the Magnavox Odyssey 2 so I had the European version which was released by Philips uh, and that was that was a something from the early 80s which I got given in the late 80s or possibly early 90s from a cousin <laughs> that right, was like the yeah. extent of my console with women had two games on it a Pac-Man clone and some kind of Space Invaders thing. And that was it. Mm -hmm. That was all me and my brother had. We played it to death. Most of my console gaming uh, was done on uh, friends' computers. So I wasn't deprived from the experience. I just didn't have one of my own. So I managed to persuade my dad that, you know, it would be good for me to be able to, like, you know, do homework and stuff. Oh, the old <laughs> homework uh, but, you know, ruse, yeah. Credit yeah. to the old man. I think he knew that it was a, you know, it was a smart thing, uh, I was that way inclined anyway, so it was it would be good for me to understand these computers, um, which he would never call them that. But you know, let's just pretend he's ignorant. Um, <laughs> so I I had a PC in it was the beginning of 1995 because the or no it was 94. I bought a copy of PC Format magazine in December 1993. Which right. was getting all excited. Thinking, oh yeah, just just yeah. anticipating all the amazing games I was going yeah. to be playing, and so I can even remember that was a black image with a picture of a bald man with white makeup on, and I think on the cover disc was when images morph or something like that, hmm. and it was just like that was it. You know, I got my computer. I think it was maybe a, you know January sales job type thing. Yeah, AMD DX two eighty. Eight megabytes of RAM, CD-ROM drive. Oh. It was the shizness. I was so happy, wow. and so I think so. SimCity must have come along um, about that time. It was like '94 or something like that. So um, yeah. I had that. Um, so that this is one of my formative gaming experiences, where you know I spent I don't know how many tens, potentially even hundreds of hours playing that game. Oh yeah, 
And so that's one of the reasons why the music from that game is stuck in my head. And this particular piece, Harbour Hymn, it's uh, atmospheric and uh, yeah, it's got... Yeah, so like occasionally, there's something about the cowbell in this, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, so this isn't sophisticated music. Music at this point was, you know, it's coming out of sound cards, um, small number of voices. Yeah. And I was, I looked up the people who wrote this. And so a couple of them were, one of them was a tech director in the game. I think right. another one was a coder. Um, and then there was also another person. Uh, so it's Brian Conrad, Justin McCormick and Sue Casper. Sue Casper mm-hmm. only worked on a couple of games for Maxis as presumably as a composer. That's all she's got credit for on the Moby Games database. I see. And yeah. uh, apparently now is a piano teacher somewhere in Deep Star right. America. So no longer working in games. But um, yeah, the, the music was fairly, fairly, fairly simple. What I love about it is if you, if, if you go back and look at that game now, the audio experience is super primitive. Like if when the music stops, there's total silence. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. going on other than some of the key sound effects. And in a way that obviously makes the music so much more important um, because it's, having to play this role kind of of both music but also in a way of of ambience and so not this track that i've selected because i've selected this because this is the one that comes to me randomly at times yes. in my life but yeah. I, it all starts with that cowbell that cowbell I hear that cowbell and and it's very important to me that we picked the adlib sound blaster pro version because of course you can replay old midi stuff through a much higher quality sound card these days but that's not What's not in my how, head? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. hear this this cowbell sound in my head, and then mm. you know, and then the, and then the notes come in, and then I'm like, "Why am I thinking?" I don't know. That is in my subconscious somehow. I don't know what it means, but it's there, and uh, I love it. I love the soundtrack for this game. Um, the the one last little comment I'll make is: so I mentioned that it's kind of fulfilling the role of ambience as well. A lot of the tracks have sort of there's musical motifs that are quite clearly at least to me i think they're they're based on um, car sounds so there's right. one that's got quite an overt siren in it it's a little nino pattern but there's other ones that are just like blatant car horns going <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah. um i just yeah it's really interesting that that was you know part of the aesthetic that they were having to sort of fill that hole there and um yeah so maybe let's take a listen to that So the, the one other thing I would point out is that there's a there's another little bit that's tacked on the end there that's a, a separate track, um, and that is another bit of music, but it, it's heard 
quite frequently, I think at the end of the year or something like that, or maybe when a newspaper pops up, you always get this little thing. And for me, uh, even in my earworm, that is also part of it, even though it's a different track. It tends to sort of finish up nicely with that (laughs) as a little cadence. Um, yeah, sort of Pavlov's dog effect. Yeah. Uh, the 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 jingles that have um, produced endorphins in your brain in games in the past. Yeah, uh, they lodge themselves, don't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. And so I hope that for some people listening, if they similarly, oh, spend, undoubtedly, yeah, they will be getting those feels. Might even feel the need to try and find a copy of it online to check yeah. it out again. Yeah, I think you can still get. I think um, I think Origin, the EA platform, yeah. still has some older versions of. Uh, of yeah, and they gave it. Sim City. That, was, they, that was freely available a few years ago as a just yeah. a little giveaway. So yeah. yeah, they they do. They have a they have one game they give away uh, all the time. So ah. it, it, like it's every they change it every few months, and it was yeah. I, I think it's I think I've got it on there. So yeah, very cool. Obviously, as as you say, it might sound differently depending on what hardware you're you're playing it through and what um what and yeah and that's the thing if someone it, was playing but... it on a on a mac back in the day they won't yeah. get the same feels from the no. blaster version so yeah. sorry <laughs> and we were talking recently also about internal uh pc uh speaker music like how oh, you yeah. can uh, go back and listen to you know stuff from lucas arts games or whatever yeah. and you'll have those amazing monkey island tunes rendered in you know, kind of really harsh kind of bleeps, but actually they did a they did a great job on those particular games. I think sometimes it would just uh, the the machine would just or the software would just interpret what the, the ad the ad lib or whatever was doing mm. and and try to beep it. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think in some cases they actually paid some attention to make sure that the the um, the timing and everything was the tempo and the, and the the sort of volumes and stuff weren't too horrific and, <laughs> and you know completely butchered your yeah. work but obviously that's not something you ever have to think about anymore it's like working as a as a games composer in the modern era is a completely you know it's it's yeah, being it's, it's being it's, a music it's less composer. of a concern for yeah. sure I mean I, I'm a bit more nose to tail in the sense that uh most composers are sort of handing their assets over and don't have any control over how they sound in the game. They have to trust the developer to, you know, do a good job. Mm. Um, but because I, you know, I'm a sound designer and audio director too, yeah. and particularly now I'm 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 freelance. I'm working with a lot of smaller teams, so mm. I'm 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 very hands on. So I do get to sort of make sure that everything sounds the way that I want, which is great because I'm a total control freak. So so that 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 works that that works for me. Um, but in terms of yeah. Worst case scenario, someone's got their surround sound set up wrong. And whilst that, you know, causes sleepless nights for audio people, yeah. uh, it's still going to be a relatively good experience, even if it's set up wrong compared yeah. to a PC speaker <laughs> back in the day. So, uh, one thing you may have had in mind when uh, writing for Tearaway, obviously we'll hear some Tearaway music later, uh, was something that came up when we covered uh, the, the Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds recently mm. on, on Kane and Rinse, was that. Uh, Nintendo uh, essentially said that the reason they hadn't used real instruments and an orchestra for the most part on those amazing reworkings of the classic mm. tunes was that the the 3DS's speakers, they had to bear in mind how the 3DS's speakers would sound because not everyone would always be playing with headphones plugged in. Yeah, that's true. I mean, my take on that is that <clears throat> this might be slightly controversial. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but my but my but my take was always anyone who really cares about the audio experience will listen on headphones because right. it's quite so clearly superior to the internal speakers yes. on a device. Yeah, I would right? agree, yeah. Yeah. And therefore, those are the people who you're creating 
the you know the the ultimate version of the audio experience for. That's fair. Yeah. Therefore, I because there's some some developers will go to quite a lot of trouble to do. They'll go to quite a lot of effort actually, extra work and you know time spent and code support and all the rest of it, mm. creating, uh, trying to create the best sounding version they can through the internal speaker. Be mm. that you know on an iPhone game or on a Vita game or a 3DS game, whatever it is. And for that, for the reason I was just discussing, my take on that is that's crazy. Mm. Anyone listening through that already isn't that you know, certainly not conscious of the audio experience. Yeah, I, I guess So don't waste true. your time. <laughs> yeah, I, that <laughs> Which makes is sense. slightly suppose, unprofessional well, in a no. way. Maybe that's just an excuse for not doing that work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of extra work. But yeah, I suppose if you think about it, like maybe when Nintendo are thinking about it, they're thinking about perhaps their slightly uh, younger demographic and they're thinking yeah. children not necessarily uh, playing with earphones in when they're just you know, around with the family and the parents don't want them to have headphones in for whatever reason. And so I suppose that's Nintendo kind of being Nintendo-y about it. But with the yeah, Vita, you've got an older, you've generally got an older player base. and uh... There is that. But also, I mean, I think, I, I don't think that's a, a total explanation for their decision there because mm. you, you can still, like the speakers are, you know, they're bad compared to the sort of direct con- you know, direct connection in inverted commas that you get over headphones. Yeah. But they're not that bad. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's a, an, an excuse for not wanting to create higher production values. I think it's, it, I mean, Nintendo are, they're kind of in a transitionary phase. They've got an interesting aesthetic at the moment where a lot of their, you know, high profile releases do have you know, a lot of live instrumentation yeah. and, you know, orchestra and all that. The, um, the Mario Kart band. Yeah, exactly. It, mm. But in a way, it's like, it's slightly awkward because it's it's got a bit of that, but it's also still trying to keep a lot of its, uh, that Nintendo sound. Mm. And I don't know, it's like, it's interesting. It's kind of got a foot in each world. Um, I mean, I'm not a Nintendo gamer. Maybe that will change when my, my, my son gets older because i think um that that is one of the attractive things about about a lot of their games is that they are obviously super child friendly and so maybe i'll become one but at this point i i just sort of view that world and that aesthetic from a distance Mm. and it's interesting but i don't quite get it because it's Mm. not it's not for me um but I, i i think i don't think nintendo gamers would want to lose that no. As criticised as it might be for being more on the bleepy bloopy side of things, I think for all the reasons we're talking about today in terms of, um, you know, the uh, the hair standing up on the back of the neck and the associative mm. memories you've got with these gaming experiences, that's part of the Nintendo thing. So, yeah, I, that's, that's got to be the real reason. I'd recommend <laughs> you have a listen to the A Link Between Worlds stuff, actually, because it's a really interesting uh, marriage of some mm. classic 16-bit sounds and some modern, much more organic-sounding instrumentation. Yeah. So although you won't have the same, if you've Eels. never been wedded to, yeah, you, if you've never been wedded to Zelda or Nintendo, you won't. But I think, like, from a from a composition point of view, mm. uh, Koji Kondo's work, um, and I've forgotten the gentleman's name, Ryuchi something, who who did the modern updates, um, yep. kind of left in some of the 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 Super Nintendo sounds while mm. layering on what sound like real violins and and orchestra and mm. stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite remarkable stuff. Cool. Yeah. No, I will. I'll check. I'll check that out. And uh, so, yeah, as a, as a sound director, 
um, you with Little Big Planet, you're not only composing your own pieces, but um, you're also uh, hiring and curating. And we'll we'll hear yeah. some some from that later on. But uh, how do you go about sort of selecting people that you know will gel with the project? So, I mean, so the, the project comes first, and obviously the tricky thing is that the project's in development; it's not done, so it's hard. You one one thing is you can't I can't just look at the game as it stands and think what music does that need mm. I've got to inform that with discussions with you know the other leads on the project creative director art director um anyone who's involved with the narrative etc cetera, etc cetera, just to sort of really get a feel for the game we're trying to make even if that's not actually manifest at the moment and from that come up with the music direction and on the little big planet games of course that was both um there's the there's the licensed music yeah. and the licensed soundtrack and then there's the original music mm. and for me i kind of um i always started out with the licensed music because that's easier in the sense that that licensed music it's pre-existing music so i've got the game or at least i've got a sense of what the game is or is trying to be and then I'm trying to find music that feels like it fits with that. And so that process would start fairly early on. And then as the project goes along, the it feels like you're honing in on something which is is working. And uh so for example, in the first Little Big Planet game, I had a process um where for each what ended up being a licensed track in the game, mm-hmm. there was actually, you know, two, three, four alternate you know, possibilities. Um, and so I would curate those and then I would hand over that little bundle and I'd put them in the game in different levels so people could sort of experience them and feel them out. Because, you know, not everyone's able to sort of listen to something in abstraction out of the game and imagine what it's like. So it's handy to have it actually in there. And then say to the team, you know, which which ones are working for you? The thinking being that I'd already <laughs> I'd already filtered them. So in a way, I was going to be happy with any of them because I'd already decided which ones I thought were fitting the game well, but then didn't want to completely exclude everyone from that process because, um, you know, it is, it is a team effort and it's not just me making the game. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the whole team. So that would give the people who cared, which isn't everyone in the team. It was normally just sort of came down to sort of, uh, half a dozen people who are really passionate about uh, music and the music in the project we're working on to sort of say, yeah, we really like this and just get that feedback. And sometimes that I would, you know, that would chime with my own feelings about it and I'd swap a track out and put something else in. And um, so it was kind of a collaborative process uh, mm. for the for the end result, but uh, with a little bit of a framework in there where I was happy with the the direction of things. And um, for all the Little Big Planet music, that was pretty much the process for choosing the licensed stuff. Um, although credit when it's where it's due, um, Rex Crowell, who was uh, one of the artists on the Little Big Planet games, but was also the creative director on Tearaway, yeah. um, he was responsible for the, uh, the choosing the Go Team track in Little Big Planet 1 mm-hmm. and also the uh, Passion Pit track in Little Big Planet 2. Right. Uh, and that was in large... I mean, those were artists and music that he, he, he liked and thought would fit the project, but also also, Rex um, uh, was responsible for creating the launch trailers and did like the intro movies for Little Big Planet. So he's um, a big part of the sort of the conceptual conceptual side of uh, Little Big Planet as well. And so that's why he had uh, 
uh, control over that. Not to mention the fact that I wasn't actually working at Media Molecule <laughs> when the Little Big Planet uh, right. track was uh, part of that. Um, so that's a little bit of insight into that process. And then when it came to working with the composers and choosing the composers, um, I already had at that point, you know, a sense of the 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 licensed music that was working and obviously I didn't want the original music to be stepping on the toes of the licensed music because particularly in terms of putting together a a library of different tracks in terms of the user-generated content side of the project it's important that the different music that I'm putting together can each one needs to serve its own little purpose and have a little slot across the potential uses that uh, the community might have for for uh, for the music in their levels, which could of course be anything, which is kind of an impossible task, but it did mean that one of the things I was always conscious of was, okay, here's the music I've got so far. I need something that does X because we don't have a track that does that yet. So there's there's quite normally you don't have that pressure in a game. You're just trying to obviously find the best music to fit the levels and the story and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Little Big Planet had a few other criteria in there, which kind of really made that a whole bunch of extra stuff I had to take into account, which made the process even harder. Um, so I'd kind of gone through all that process. To start with, in Little Big Planet 1, I was pretty green. You know, I'd uh, I'd been a sound designer working with Sony for sort of four years prior to that. And so this yeah. was my first time, um, well, I was working on my own. I was f- totally responsible for the audio experience and sort of making it happen. So I didn't, I hadn't hired any composers before. So I, I and actually Matt Clark, um, who was the, the other main or he was the main composer on Little Big Planet. Um, Matt was already on board with the project when I came on board, so um, so I didn't have any say in that really. Matt was already doing stuff. Um, he'd done some music for the the announcement. Uh, there's some other trailers that alongside the one that features the Go Team track. Matt had had done that, um, and so he was there. And so I was working with Matt, and so there wasn't any sort of process of choosing him for me there. He he came packaged up already. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Daniel Pemberton was a pal or is a pal of Rex's. And I'm working with Rex and Daniel at the moment on Nights, Nights and, Bikes. and Bikes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to tell you about that at some point when we finished it. But um, so Daniel and, and Rex were pals from Lionhead back in the day. And again, because um, there's a bunch of music in Little Big Planet that's by Daniel, but that that was all actually licensed because um, right. that was stuff he'd written for TV shows. Oh, I um, see. Okay. He did a lot of TV music before he became a Hollywood A-lister, <laughs> right. uh, working with Danny Boyle and, uh, you know, um, Ridley Scott and all the rest of it. Mm. He, uh, he did, uh, he did the TV shows. And so this was stuff in his back catalogue that he owned outright. So I was able to license that from him. So the only bit of music that Daniel wrote specifically for Little Big Planet was the intro movie music. And again, that was Rex's domain. So he brought his mate Daniel in and he did, he did a great job on that, and uh, I worked much more closely with Matt on the on the music for Little Big Planet. So Matt really wrote all the interactive music um, in Little Big Planet One. I helped him out a bit on some of the stuff um, where I felt like um, I had a better understanding of what the game needed. So I got my hands dirty on some of his tracks. Sorry, Matt, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it worked out well. And actually, I think the best tracks in the games are the ones that we collaborated on. Um, I think you could say that similarly about the the music that I did on Tearaway with uh, working with Brian Oliveira. Although most of the music we wrote um, ourselves, um, we kind of performed on each other's music to a certain extent. Okay. Uh, but there's some tracks that we wrote. Uh, we had a bit more of a collaboration, passing the tracks back and forward, okay. and really sort of shaping each other's work. And those I'm always are the interested best. in that side of things yeah. because so many, it's, it's always difficult to know when you just see the two names. You think, mm. how did they actually work together? Were you in a studio together? Were you just sending each other stuff? Or? No, yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that more when we get to uh, yes, theory, please, because that yeah. stuff is super. 
yeah, I'd love to talk about that too. And it's nice to <laughs> reminisce about it because we had a great experience. I loved working with Brian. It was great. Um, so that was a little bit of Planet One. Um, a little bit haphazard. Didn't really know what I was doing. But at, at the very least, I still had, you know, a good conceptual framework for what the music needed to be. And so uh, fortunately, you know, that all that all worked out. Um, you know, and the, the, the soundtracks, you know, were an acclaimed part of the experience. And so I'm super proud of that. Um, Little Big Planet 2 was a bit different because at that point, you know, having shipped a Little Big Planet game already, it felt like I knew a bit more about <laughs> what I was doing or trying yeah, to do. Sure. Uh, and then the challenge became just trying to sort of maintain that. And that was the pressure was that we'd done such a good job on the first game. I was trying to follow up with the awkward uh, second project. So um, I actually kind of went a bit nuts on that and went from working with... Uh, Essentially, it was just one other composer on Little Big Planet because Daniel just sort of uh, did a great job without much input from me. Um, on the second game, I think it was me and there was six other composers. So I kind of went the other direction and just, I was thinking, you know, in Little Big Planet 2, there's so much, uh, it, it benefits from having the eclecticism across the soundtrack. So I was thinking, working with a bunch of different people will mean we'll get that. And it, you know, and I can it's a good excuse to work with a bunch of different people. The main problem was actually just managing that. That was a lot of people for one person to work with on top of being like, you know, the lead sound designer and audio director on the yeah, project. So yeah. that was a bit of a steep learning curve in terms of uh, managing that process. But those people came from a whole bunch of different places. Um, some of them were people I wanted to work with. Some of them were people who Sony had worked with in the past or had uh, met and recommended. Um, so that just came from a whole diff- bunch of different places, um, and and again, I think the the music experience uh, in Little Big Planet Two is it's, it's quite different, different vibe to Little Big Planet One. But yeah, absolutely. It, you know, there's a lot of really really good music in there. Let's and, hear some. Uh, What's this you've brought for us from uh, from LBP Two? So this one is one of one of my tracks. Um, this is uh, the Da Vinci tutorial music, which is one of the it's the first theme in Little Big Planet Two. Yeah, um, and so this is literally I think it's in the first level. I might be wrong about it. maybe it's the second level. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure it's the first level. Or I maybe think it's it Richard. Or it might be Richard. Richard Jakes also wrote a, a track, an interactive music track. So this is oh. an interactive track. It's got six stems. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not familiar with Little Big Planet, you uh, as a, as a when you're making your own levels, or me as a you know developer at Media Molecule, when I'm scoring a level, play through it, and because I've got six little volume sliders, and each one's got different content on it. I can uh, select the the musical content that feels appropriate for that part of the level. So what what you'll hear isn't isn't from the game. It's actually a mix that I've done that is uh, you know my my best presentation of that interactive music in Wonderful. stereo form.
So yes, that was Da Vinci tutorial by our guest, Kenneth C.M. Young. Kenny to his friends. And uh, yeah, uh, so that's a really cool bit. Um, and Yeah, I mean, it's a bit... I, I, what I, the reason I picked that one is it's a little bit unconventional mm. and unusual. The instrumentation is weird. It's got, you know, the lead instrument. If there is... The, the one thing about the Little Big Planet interactive music is it's terribly overwritten because each stem's got to have unique content on it and that means if all six stems are playing it's quite busy if anything it's actually too much um, which mm. is a difficult one for a lot of the composers to get their heads around when you say you know when all six stems are playing it actually needs to sound a little bit bad that's not something people are used to <laughs> being asked to do no, right. um, and uh, so but hopefully the, the the stereo version I've made there the, the, the linear version is a nice presentation but you know having the the, the bassoon as lead instrument is unusual. For me, that instrument actually mm. represents Da Vinci because he's this sort of old man. And so the bassoon is him. The other aspects of the track are representative of either... Uh, in the game, the, the, the visual aesthetic is it's a mashup between high-tech, futuristic sci-fi and the Renaissance. So yeah. it's a weird mixture of Da Vinci stuff with cool new stuff as if Da Vinci is still alive now but also exists in his old self. Bit weird. <laughs> doesn't need to explain. It's just sort of, that's what happens in Little Big Planet. Just go with and it. And so, the, yeah, exactly. The music mashup is, I've so they've got the harpsichord, because that's ye oldie worldy, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, totally, instantly. Yeah. Instantly. It instantly communicates something that is also bizarrely, feels quite British to me. I don't know. I don't know. Quintessentially. Yeah. Polite society, old worldy, Englandy. I don't know. Which isn't, um, da Vinci, but his character in the game has a quite a, a plum, <laughs> a plum voice mm. in the uh, in the English version, so it totally works. And um, mm. so there's that, and then there's the there's the the drums, uh, which are you know, for the one hand you've got the kind of Renaissance feeling thing going on with the tambourine, but then of course you've got the much more modern glitch aesthetic stuff. So it's a real mashup of things which just normally wouldn't go together and so that's what I enjoyed about creating that track but also that's what I like about the uh, about the finished thing it's just it's a bit unusual and also it's got an awesome uh, in the B part it's just a really good chord progression which I just love um, and there was another thing I noticed when I was thinking about after I picked all these tracks for you I looked at them all and they've all got something in common which is that mm. generally speaking the A part is a bit more kind of sad <laughs> <laughs> and um, melancholic, but then the B part is more positive, and so it turns out that's a recurring trait in in the in the music I write. And that I think that goes. Does that say something about you? Uh, I don't know. I think it's. I don't know if it's just like a really tragic trick I've got because it's 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 a good juxtaposition to go from you know yeah. those two emotional states, and it gives the you know the emotional high in the second part. So the track always starts on a downer because then you can go to. The, the euphoria <laughs> of the of the B part and here comes the drop like yeah that. exactly so they're all they are, they, they are all very simple sort of binary form A B kind of pop song type uh, in their structure and they also which is interesting because I'm I'm a fiddle player that's my like sort of musical background and so yeah. fiddle, traditional fiddle tunes are binary form they're A B A B that's that's you know it's, and so maybe that's where it comes from um, okay but yeah it's, it's interesting to see to view these tracks as a little collection even though they're across different projects but they're obviously from from me and that they've got that s similar structure and similar sort of emotional arc to them which is uh, maybe I need to <laughs> adventure outside of that in the future nah, it's all but good um, it's all good it works 
ain't broke, don't fix it. One <laughs> thing I suppose it would be remiss of me in a journalistic sense not to ask you about oh, while I've got you here is mm. uh, whether you felt the brunt of the fallout regarding the inclusion of the track with the lyrics on that were deemed. I certainly didn't feel, I, f- I felt... I mean, ultimately, I suppose I, I was I'm responsible for choosing the track, right? Um, in the sense that you know, through that process, I was t- telling you about earlier. Um, the other track I had in there was uh, I can't remember the name of the track, but it was, it was a group called Tenarowen, who mm-hmm. are a group of nomadic uh, North African musicians who you know yeah. fairly well known, been on tour with the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. Um, mm. so it was a really really nice track from that, and then there was the track by Tumani Diabati, um, also wonderful piece of music, yeah, and you know. It didn't particularly occur to me that because I didn't know what was being sung that that was much of a problem. Yeah, of course. Um, and um, although having said that, you know, like I had as best as I could for all the bits of music in the game um, identified what all the lyrics were and mm. um, just doing a bit of due diligence. And But for that track, couldn't. Um, right. And so in a way that covered my, <laughs> covered my ass. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, ultimately I suppose... Uh, it's easy for me to pass the buck and say that wasn't that's not my job um, the re- <laughs> reality was it wasn't anyone's job no one no. was assigned to that task no. and so I do feel <laughs> the guilt of the fact that obviously the game was delayed which was uh, really 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 heartbreaking for the team because you know we'd, we'd done this thing we'd been on this amazing journey made something we're really proud of it's done you know we've shipped it and then it's like i can still remember the phone call i got i was on the train yeah. back from london or on the way to london or something i don't know where i'd been and just got this phone call from i think it was lucy one of our producers saying that this thing happened i was just like what <laughs> no way yeah what i like is this a joke are you joking she's like no this is serious you need to come to the studio now and i was like oh no <laughs> yeah. and so i mean i was really upset because yeah. it like you know i felt responsible for it and um, so fortunately um I, I mean in terms of the decision to uh blah, 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 recall the game mm. that was that was down to so i mean that went to the top that that decision was taken by Kaz yes. Hirai. yeah um, I, I remember that being in the news that yeah, yeah it was and you've got to sort of you know this was at, at that point islamophobia was you know particularly rampant and there was a lot of fear there and i think from from him at that point you know it's got nothing to do with the game it's everything to do with sony's corporate image of and course. not wanting to you know be seen as a target fundamentally mm-hmm. and so he had to make that very difficult decision yeah. and but to, to sony's credit that didn't um media molecule <laughs> and myself in particular there was wasn't no punished for yeah. it there was no comeback so they they took yeah. the hit of that financially of recalling the game yeah um you know, so so thank you, Uncle Sony, yeah. for that one. And who knows? Like, I mean, Little Big Planet One was obviously super successful, and I think that's large part down to 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 the project. But it's hard to to know what the implications were of you know. I remember it being on the ten o'clock news mm. on BBC. Well, that the game had been no called publicity, because bad of publicity, the, and all that sort of. I thing. I know, so, and so it's yeah. like, was it was it actually? helpful in the long run for the success of media molecule i don't know it's it's one of those very very strange it's almost otherworldly like i'm kind of abstracted from it now because it's such such a long time ago Mm. but but yeah it was just it was a very bad sad thing to happen yeah um and uh but you know the lesson is 
don't put music in your game. <laughs> you don't know, you don't what, know what people what are saying. Well, Which, when you say it out loud, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. But it uh, was a Grammy Award-winning album. So I was going to say, the crazy <laughs> thing is, the album's still out there and available. Some copies of the game that were, you know, had got into the hands of independent retailers did make it into people's collections and stuff like that. So, yeah. So yeah. it's out there. It's on YouTube. If you don't play the patch uh, version. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, you know, the, the hilarious, well... I don't know if hilarious is the right word, but the exact same thing had happened with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time yeah, 10 years yep. previously. Yeah. Uh, so there's two So that means we're due, we're due another one now. It's been 10 years, so who's yeah. going to make the mistake next? Yes. Right. <laughs> I think that, that, was a, that was a case of, had they not um, had a recording of The Call to Prayer in their track or something like that? that. In, in the Fire Temple, I think it was. Mm, yeah. 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 I think people are probably a little bit more sensitive to that Yes. Yes. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't big news at the time. They just quietly uh, made another batch of cartridges Mm. with different ROMs in, and uh, (laughs) and again, it's out there. It's you can hear it. Uh, And we talked. We we've recently covered the entire The Legend of Zelda series, and we talked a lot about the uh, religious imagery that that actually goes all the way through the series, uh, particularly Mm. Christian stuff um, in the Japanese versions of the early games. So it it was kind of it made sense, but uh, but yeah, it was. uh, uh, it was deemed at some point. I don't. Th- I, don't I think it was entirely an internal decision on their part as well, as I recall. But uh, right, yeah, it was just like somebody went, "Hang on, I recognise this." And uh, yeah, so again, so that th- probably the cost other interesting them a bit of thing money. is that um, for me, that that was. I think that was. There's a couple of instances where I kind of went against my own brief <laughs> for the music, and that right. track was one of them because one of the sort of things I imposed on myself, which was, I think, it's part of the reason why the the soundtrack is so interesting is that so that the different themes in little big planet are based on different countries and a lot of those are quite obvious some of them maybe not so clear um but we had very definite countries in mind and so for the theme that the tumani diabati track is in that has uh internally we called that well i think in the game it's called the savannah Mm -hmm. um yes but we, we we thought of that as you know as africa this is the african level and so one of my the things I sort of had decreed and was quite dogmatic about was the music for a theme, the licensed music for a theme. We went completely opposite direction of the original music, but the licensed music for a theme can't sound like it comes from that place. Right. Um, which is, that was one that some people on the team were just like really, <laughs> like what? <laughs> really angry about. But I felt really strongly that the way we would get a really kind of, you know, unique and original soundtrack would be not to go for stereotypes, yeah. but to go for just like the opposite of a stereotype. Let's give people something they don't expect. A juxtaposition kind of thing. Absolutely. So that's why you get really nice tracks like uh, the Cafe Tacuba track, which is in the, uh, I think it's called The Wedding, which for us was uh, the Day of the Dead kind of Mexican theme. And so again, it's not a mariachi band. It is... um, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's like the South American equivalent of U2. They're a huge, huge, huge band in Spanish-speaking countries, and so there's cool things like that going on. But then for the Tumani Di Bati track, fundamentally we picked that because it sounded really African, <laughs> and it felt like it really backed up that sense of yeah. place. And so, can I went against my own brief and then was punished <laughs> by having the game recalled? I took that as a lesson to stick to the brief, which is a good one. It's a good one to have. That's 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 audio direction. That's why you stick to yeah. the brief. Yeah, uh, d- do as you do as you do as well as what you say, kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So back to uh, your youth in 1994, and you've got your brand spanking oh, yeah. new PC. And oh yeah. Uh, and so 
I think the first game that I bought full price. Yeah. And I bought it idiotically. I was young. I was naive. I bought it in Amsterdam airport. <laughs> I can't remember where I'd, I'd been going, um, but I bought... A bit of holiday money free. left over. There's nothing well, it was like, like it. you know, it was, hey, it's tax-free. It's got to be cheaper than it would be back <laughs> oh, yeah, home. Right. And I don't know that old scam. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's easy now as an adult to walk through GTF and say, it's cheaper in the supermarket than it yeah. is here. But, you know, as a, wherever I was, I must have been a 13-year-old kid. Yeah. Um, that was, so yeah, I think it was something ridiculous, like 50 or 60 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's what that was. That was the full, you know, retail price of a game. But this yeah. was me thinking, this game's just Must come out. Yeah. It'll be a bargain because it's VAT free, blah, 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 blah. Bought it, you know, discovered after I got home and saw it in the shops that I'd been diddled. But nonetheless, um, I loved this game. Wing Commander 3 was... Um, yeah, it was. I, I hadn't played any of the X-Wing games, I don't think, no. at that point. So I hadn't really been exposed to space combat. Mm-hmm. Um, this looked really appealing. The fact that it had Luke Skywalker in the uh, <laughs> the title role was yeah. a massive, uh, massively appealing. And this was at a point when Mark Hamill, you know, wasn't certainly not. Uh, to 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 fans wasn't necessarily known as you know a voiceover artist and the voice of the Joker and all the rest of it. He was yeah. kind of in this lull point in his career. Yeah. Um. Twenty years after, or I suppose actually ten years after the maybe uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, which you know, ten years. We think about that now. Ten years. You know, thinking back to when this. So this game's is twenty. 23 years ago. Yeah. Um, so he, so that, that's why he took that gig. Mm-hmm. He needed the cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that was just, that made, that was a, that was a massive, uh, massive, 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 massive appeal to me. Um, space combat, flying planes. I had to play quite a lot of flight simulators. So the com, putting that in space was really attractive. Luke Skywalker, live, it had the whole, you know, interactive movie thing going on. Oh yeah, CD-ROM. It was, the, the, it's, it's hard to uh, underplay just how, what Absolutely. a big production this was in terms yeah. of video games at the time. It was like yeah, the meeting of movies and, Absolutely. and, uh, and games. And it was just really novel and exciting. And, uh, and I, I loved it. And it was one that's, you know, I, and I completed it. So I think that says something. I mean, obviously, I had a lot of time. <laughs> and not many games because you'd spent and not it many all games. On Wing absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. But um, so the the bit of music I've picked from this is it's another earworm. So, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this this popped into my head uh, the other day while I was doing the dishes, and I, I tweeted uh, George uh, Olji who uh, who who wrote it. Um, he was oh, an in house composer at Origin at the time. Yeah, the original Wing Commander games had. The music had been written by George Sanger, um, so I, I'm not sure if George had left or whatever. But George Old was was in house composer at that time, and uh, I, so when this popped into my head when I was doing the dishes, and I just tweeted <laughs> George Old to say that, say I was in the dishes, and the uh, Wing Commander three theme popped into my head. Yeah, and he was like, "I'm deeply honoured," and I don't know if that was sarcastic or, <laughs> or what because i didn't i didn't mean to um suggest that his music was like so pedestrian as to be dishwashing music <laughs> no. it was more the fact that you know 20 years over 20 years later yeah, yeah. this thing is still in there and uh, i think that is that's that's got to be some mark of uh of, of the work that he did that it is so meaningful to me that it's part of my brain subconscious it's in there I wonder and, if he uh, looked at maybe it may have been absolutely genuine deeply honoured he may have looked at who you were what was on your <laughs> yeah, Twitter maybe. profile you know maybe. he might be a fan yeah you, you never know um, so 
that yeah let's so let's take take a listen to that because uh and i should i should just say if you're going to play the whole thing that the the thing that's stuck in my head is the main theme which is the first sort of 30 seconds and the rest of it this is the intro yeah cue to the intro movie so it's the rest of it's a little bit fluffy because it's score so you'll just have to uh, imagine <laughs> what's happening alongside space the opera uh, <laughs> with giant cats that's all you need to know <laughs>
excellent stuff, evocative. Uh, I I, uh, I remember that coming to PS uh, One as well. It was ported ah, later to nice. PlayStation uh, with I think slightly slightly slower polygons and slightly grainier FMV Quite than a possibly. top end PC. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a fixture on the uh, on the shop shelves back in the mid nineties. I have to say, I, di- I didn't play Wing Commander Four. Uh, mm. I think I maybe played the demo. Which had even higher resolution video. It was very exciting. Oh yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but um, yeah, I loved that game. And the one other thing I want to mention, I don't know if you have time to play it, but um, um, I, I was just when I was googling uh, this to try and find you a clip of it, I, I came across the fact that George Olji had uh, done a successful Kickstarter campaign back yeah. in 2014 to record a bunch of his uh, Wing Commander music. Um, and he got enough money to go out to record the Slovak National Symphony and a huge forty voice choir. Um, so you can you can you can you can buy that on his, his on his website. You don't just have to be a Kickstarter backer to get that. And um, it's interesting to compare the two, just because, um, irrespective of the fact that the Kickstarter version obviously has insanely higher production quality. Um, yeah, it's it's the original version that makes the hairs in the back of my neck stand up just because that is again for all the stuff we've been talking about that is the definitive version for me Mm. um and it goes to show just how important that is because here's a version that's technically superior and it's not that it has no effect on me it's still still a great piece of music um there's still moments where the music is the thing that is communicating some emotion but that but it's not coming from the the game experience because that's there's no association for me there yeah um, which is, you know, that's quite an unusual opportunity to get that comparison. So um, that's worth checking out if you. And Definitely. there's some samples on George's SoundCloud, which you can uh, check out to do that little AB comparison yourself. Is uh, is working with a live orchestra of the size of a of a national symphony something that's uh, an ambition for you, or have you managed to do it in any capacity? Uh, no, like is it is it an ambition? I think I find that terrifying. <laughs> It, it sounds like it would be terrifying as somebody with no talent for music uh, composition <laughs> honest, whatsoever. It depends I, I on the gig. Think it sounds terrifying, but I mean the, the the process is intimidating just because of you know the weight of it and the expense and you know you can't screw this up. That whole that whole th- that that's all there. That that anxiety yeah. is part of it. Um, but for me, it, like having worked in house and you know I've got a lot of friends in the industry who are other uh, audio directors and stuff and I know people work in you know like for example the there's, there's the music department in Sony's London studios the music department in uh, in the states Sony Computer Entertainment America who do all the stuff for like Naughty Dog etc etc and if you're a composer working with with Sony on one of their big AAA projects then you literally you you write the music someone else orchestrates it uh, the yeah. whole everything's handled for you yes. you know what I mean you're being paid to write the music um, and that's what you focus on, and and to to a crazy extent where and the Americans have a system where they quite specifically don't hire game composers. They actually hire who they think will be the best composer for the project, and ask them to write the best music they can. And then through the recording process, that is how they are able to turn it into interactive music in the game. Um, yeah. So that frees up someone like. Uh, forget the name of the chap who did the uh, the last of us soundtrack uh, um, gustavo santolaya thank you um who obviously not got any games experience um but he was just able to write uh, the best music he, he could for the experience and then the the team at sony turned it into an interactive score and um so 
if, if, if I was lucky enough to get that kind of gig, yeah. then yeah. hey, no worries. I'll just focus on writing the music and someone else can stress about <laughs> the recording session. Because I certainly, you know, I'm not a conductor. I don't have uh, orchestration skills right. um, w- to the extent where well, I'm sure I could do it slowly and painfully mm-hmm. uh, as in my first orchestration Fisher-Price yeah. <laughs> attempt at it. <laughs> but, um, you know, like one of my very good friends, um, Jim Fowler, who works at Sony in London, he's, he's a professional orchestrator and that's what he does day in, day out. And so I'd much rather have a collaboration with someone who it's going to say knows, collaboration sounds ideal yeah someone who knows what the voicings and range of every instrument in the orchestra is and how to get the, a certain uh, effect and uh, they'll show the emotional range and all the rest of it so yeah. yeah I mean I'm fascinated by that stuff I would love to spend more of my time writing music it's a real privilege to write music that's what we're talking about today but like I've mentioned you know I'm a sound designer an audio mm. director and I tend to be involved uh, nose to tail in the projects I work on and um, which I also like because fundamentally I really enjoy you know making games I enjoy being a game developer and I enjoy being the person responsible for creating an audio experience that you know makes all that stuff happen and uh but yeah, if if I was suddenly to be thought of by uh, the game development population as the, the composer they want in their project, then yeah, hire me because <laughs> because it's fun. It's it's like I say, it's an, it's an honor yeah. to be to be paid money, actual money to yeah. write music. It's kind of it's kind of ridiculous, and I don't I don't take it for granted for a second. It's uh, it's it's awesome. That's great, and. Uh... And now we're going to hear a piece from uh, from I think it's fair to call it a beloved soundtrack uh, for a, for a, a beloved game by those who have played it. And uh, I want to say, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it will no longer be on PlayStation Plus. But I'm hoping that people listening to this, if they if they hadn't picked up Tearaway already uh, on the Vita, or if they didn't have a Vita, or if they hadn't got round to buying it in one of the many digital sales on uh, on, on PS4, Tearaway Unfolded, um, everyone who has a PS Plus account should now have it in their collection. So hopefully uh, it must be quite cool for you to think that some people who, you know, perhaps this is a game that you could say is uh, underappreciated. Perhaps uh, yeah, more people certainly. will get to play it. Absolutely. I, w- I mean, I would love to see how many people picked it up um, from their PlayStation Plus. Mm. Um, and yeah, the fact that the the soundtrack was available too, if you downloaded it, is just... yeah. Awesome, and um, that's a whole bunch more people. Hopefully, who will get to hear uh, all the TLC blood, sweat, and tears that myself and Brian uh, mm. put into <laughs> into the soundtrack. Um, yeah. So this piece you picked for us from the OST is The Orchards. Uh, anyone who's played the game will know it. Um, yeah, so this track holds a special place in my heart because it's kind of a good. It's a it's a bit of a line in the sand because uh, so I worked on Terry from day one. Um, I was working on Tearaway at the same time as as Dreams. So both those projects are basically the post-LBP2 period. There was Little yeah. Planet 2, then there was a bunch of DLC that we worked on. And then we kind of handed that over to to Sony and to Sumo, obviously for Little Big Planet 3. Yeah. And so that freed us all up to work on other stuff. And so Tearaway and Dreams both started at that point in, I guess early 2011 which is mm. what six years ago now oh, no. um <laughs> it's just crazy but so i was kind of uh on both of those projects um but and so my time was kind of split and it was fine because it's pre-production so it wasn't you know full-on crazy crunchy development which is not really possible to work on one one project at a time when you're doing that but so this was early days very much just exploring both those projects and and so for tearaway i had been writing music uh for since day one just you know 
always with a purpose. Uh, so the, the concept of uh, like music concept art doesn't really exist. I'm sure it probably does with some people's workflows, but that's not something most composers would. Most people are hired to uh, write the finished result. They're not yeah. necessarily paid to experiment. <laughs> Right, yeah, which is a shame because that's how you get you get good stuff. So I was in a privileged position as the audio director in the project to, whilst I'm writing music, to just sort of try things out. But it was never just like, hey, I'm going to just explore my feelings. It was always, okay, so Rex has made a video exploring uh, the uh, dialogue system. So I'm going to mock up the sound of that and I'm going to write some music to score it. So I was always like writing music to try and fit a thing, be it a level or a mock up or whatever it was. Never just like, you know, because concept art visually is just sort of a standalone thing. It stands up on its own. So that's why I'm saying the concept of music concept art doesn't really exist because people tend not to write music for music's sake yeah. for a project. Um, and so I've been writing music and none of it was quite right. But then again, the project didn't have a sense of itself yet. So it wasn't possible. It was intrinsically impossible to write perfect music for, for the experience. But this track really represents the first time I'd written a bit of music that... You know, it was just really clear that it just absolutely gelled with the project and just chimed with it. And more than just supporting it, it felt like it added something that wasn't actually really present in the project. Um, one of the references for this track was the soundtrack to The, the Wicker Man. Right, um, yeah. Which has that, you know, 60s kind of folk revival, acoustic guitar. Uh, I think it's got recorders in there. And yeah. places, And it's yeah. obviously quite a dark, unsettling terrifying uh, film yeah. <laughs> it's quite dark they, they burn a man and uh, spoilers yeah. spoilers um don't watch the nicholas cage version um or no do. the beat no. <laughs> the only good thing about it is the burning um so oh that's really dark um sorry i apologize <laughs> no, i like I'd that i delete that comment i'm not i'm not that nasty human being i promise oh. um so, so that was a point of reference. And so it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm pastiching it, but that the main thing that Rex liked about that was the darkness because folk culture does have that kind of, there's the, there's the darkness of nature and of the woods and what's in the woods and there's black magic and there's just kind of that slightly darker side to the unknown that's going on in there. And there's similar things, you know, in fairy tales. Like the original fairy tales are all terrifying. And so that's all folk culture as well. It's like that that side of things is where, where Rex was coming from here. And on the whole, the, the game itself doesn't really touch on that much. So that's why I say it feels like this track brings a little bit of that side of things to the table. Uh, and so that felt really special. Um, and the other sort of slightly weird, odd interesting thing about this track is mm. that this is also at the point where I was starting to try and find uh, a composer for the project. So whilst I had been writing music over a couple of years at this point in sort of pre-production, that was <clears throat> that was me just really trying to help hone the audio direction. I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as the composer on the project. I was just writing music to facilitate my audio direction and the music direction and get a sense of what was working and what didn't. And it was also a project where licensed music just didn't fit. We couldn't find anything that really just seemed to work. Yeah. And that was initially a concern because, of course, we were known for the Little Big Planet games. And yes, they had uh, some great original music in there, but they also had the great license soundtrack. And so the initial starting point was to assume that we would just do that. Um, and right. when we couldn't find anything, huh. it was like, damn. <laughs> um, I, I would I, never I, have guessed that 
having heard the finished thing. I it, know, I know, but but you can also like it's like you know think of trying to find some music that you think might fit it is also like that's the challenge, you know. And if you do find something, <laughs> let me know. So you know, like in the original announcement trailer had the Stealing Sheep track in it. Um, and again, that was chosen by Rex. So same same uh, lineage as the Little Big Planet announcement trailers. Rex had created those and uh, chosen those bits of music for them. Um, he managed to find that, and that certainly fitted uh, aspects of that we liked about about the project. So that that track has uh, it, it sounds a little bit like a a nursery rhyme or a witch's spell. So it's got yeah. again that darkness. It's got that folky thing going on, but it's also a good trailer track because it's kind of got that juxtaposition from quiet bit to uh, to loud bit with drums. And you always need that lift when you're making a trailer to yep. sort of give right. it a boost. And so it did all these things, ticked all that boxes, but that just that track just did not work in the game. And there was nowhere in the game where that would have fitted. Maybe an instrumental version might have worked, but anyway, so I had all this going on. And that's another reason why I was investigating writing music was to try and get a sense of, okay, so if you can't find anything that fits, what does fit the world of Tearaway? So this track happened, and the weird thing about it is that, so I was trying to find a composer, and so the process for that, because you were asking about this earlier in terms of finding composers, this was the project where I really did this properly for the first time. Rather than just picking people who I'd worked with before or asking for recommendations, I went out my way to cast the net really wide to try and find, you know, like our perfect composer for Tearaway. So I got help from um, a chap called uh, Duncan Smith, who works at um, Sony's... um, uh, music department and um, and Duncan um, sort of helped me come up with a long list of about 30 people um, and they didn't know they were on the long list this was just like you know a, a list of people for me to evaluate and um, out of that I got down to t- 10 people who I interviewed basically and just had a chat with right. them either over Skype or they came into the studio if they were in the UK just to sort of you know tell them about the project sound them out talk about their work talk about what you're trying to do just see if we you know clicked because hiring a composer it's not it shouldn't actually be that different especially if you want to do something collaborative it's not that different to just hiring someone for a job yeah. where you want someone who obviously you like and who's going to you know that's going to make the relationship more fruitful because you enjoy spending time working together yeah and um, sure. so there was that side of it and then out of those 10 people i asked sort of five or six people to actually pitch and so the pitch process is where you get the composers to write something to a brief and so it's effectively a little job test it's just to see if so i've got my brief where i say here's what the game's about here's the things i i want you to i want you to write a track that's you know 30 seconds long a minute long that uses these kind of instrumental ideas feel free to bring a bit yourself to the table but you know this is what this track needs to do and so you can write in this tight brief and then they write their music and then you get back your pitches and so in theory you get your favorite one and it's like hey job done that person gets the gig and writes the music for the game unfortunately whilst all the music that came back was really good none of it still none of it really fitted Tearaway and the awkward thing that happened was we I think we had a deadline for E3 or something like that there was like a, some kind of trade show we had we were going to show the game I think or it wasn't the Gamescom announcement it must have been after that so Gamescom's in October maybe it was E3 the following year um, the brief I'd given to the composers was this brief for effectively the track that was for the Orchards but we then decided to show that level and so I wrote a track for the for what was just going to be this demo for the Orchards, but it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it was better than any of the stuff the other composer had written. So it was really awkward because not only had did no one's stuff quite fit the game, I'd written this track that did. 
So there was this real sort of <laughs> crisis of confidence where, and this process trying to find a composer had taken about three months. So it was you know, a big bit of work trying to get the right person. And I'd kind of ruined it in a way, but also, <laughs> so it was at that point that Siobhan, um, Media Molecule Studio Director, bless her, said, well, why don't you write it then? <laughs> Which was great because I suppose in my heart of hearts that is what I was hoping someone might say right. all along. Yeah. Anyway, it was like, yeah, sweet. But at the same time, it was really heartbreaking because I didn't have the time to do it. Just did not have the time to do it because I just had all my other responsibilities as the lead sound designer and managing other people in the team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, I was really just gutted that it was like, you know, two years into the project, I managed to sort of nail it and get something that really fits to it and speaks to the heart of the project. And I like, so I'm the right person for the job. <laughs> But I don't have time to do it. It was like, it was really cruel. So yeah. at that point, finding a composer sort of switched from, okay, we've, 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 we've done this properly. We've tried to find someone who really gets this. It's obviously a difficult project. The fact that we couldn't find licensed music that would fit, the fact that we couldn't find a composer to, to do something meant that this was going to be difficult. So it changed to trying to find someone who I could work really closely with, where we, we acknowledged that... It wasn't going to be the case of us saying, here's what we need and them delivering it. It was going to be a case of us saying, here's what we need, them delivering it, getting it wrong, and me working closely with them to try and get it into a place where it did fit the project. And so it was very much more from trying to find a composer to trying to find uh, like a real true collaborator. Mm. And that's why we went with Brian, because he takes so many boxes on that front in the sense that in some respects, and I'm sure Brian hates every time I say this, but <laughs> it's true. In some respects, his demo was indisputably the best pitch in the sense that it, this track just was it was a beautiful thing that he made and so we were all in love with it but it, it was also the probably the least suitable for Terraway mm. and Brian's background he's um half Trinidadian half Venezuelan is his heritage and he's you know and he's and he's a Canadian uh, he lives in Montreal so he's got all these different things in the mix his background is as a percussionist and wind player so his he did the soundtrack to Papo and You, yes, which is absolutely gorgeous. Amazing. And um, yeah. so his demo actually sounded quite more along those side of things rather than the kind of Anglo-Celtic um, stuff that we really wanted. And so it was like, well, he's a multi-instrumentalist, so he plays a bunch of different stuff, and that's great. He's clearly not scared to experiment. You know, he likes to build his own instruments, and Brian is an amazing uh, luthier and instrument maker too, which is like completely oh, annoying. Wow. And <laughs> like he... Uh, I could talk about Brian all day. He is absolutely an amazing human being and an amazing composer and amazing musician and all the rest of it. So that's why we picked him is because he just seemed like the complete package, even though he didn't get <laughs> what we wanted. Right. But because he was really, he's really good. Um, and he, because we went into it from the outset saying, look, it's going to be a bit different. It's going to be experimental and collaborative. That's how it's going to be to start with. Um, we didn't really know where it was going to go from that point. Fortunately, it all worked out great. And Brian was a super fast learner and took everything I said on board and was after, you know, a few weeks and a few different tracks was writing just amazing stuff that was very much tear away, but also brought a lot of Brian to the table, which was just, that's exactly what you want in a collaboration is to A, get back something that is better than what you asked for and B, for the, the, the person to bring a bit themselves to the table. So, so yeah, that was, that was an absolutely sort of brilliant uh, an enjoyable process working with Brian, which given the starting point was kind of, you know, there's just a lot of <laughs> worry there on my part. And so, yeah, this track represents the beginning of that whole process and it kind of all going a bit wrong, but also in a way represents the beginning of my journey as a composer in some respects, because the stuff I'd done on Little Big Planet was me abusing my position <laughs> as audio director to kind of uh, write music where I could 
but particularly where I thought that I was the best person for the job. Yeah. Whereas this was me being asked sort of to write music for a game by by Siobhan and and by Rex, which was which was you know, really touching. And then Brian sort of completing the puzzle really and making that a possibility. Because without Brian, uh, Tearaway wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to write the music on my own. Um, Brian couldn't write music for the game without me, so we kind of we we really worked together as a team on that, and uh, and both got a lot of it. And Brian and I are really good friends, and yeah. So this track, I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it's so yeah. the beginning of that process. I also get emotional thinking about Brian's closing piece for Papo and Yo. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. So next up, we have some more uh, orchestrated style space opera. This is a pick oh, yeah. of yours from the early 2000s now. We've moved on to Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, and I don't think I'd ever quite made the connection that this is uh, this is Jeremy Saul, who uh, people will probably know best from Elder Scrolls games, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Jeremy's an amazing composer. And what, what in terms of Knights of the Old Republic, this was... Again, this is another much loved game. Um, this was another. I was a bit older at this time, so I, in terms of the time of my life that this takes me back to, is I was mm. I just got my first job in the industry. I think this game came out for Christmas two thousand and three. I started working at Sony in their London studio as a junior sound designer in January two thousand and four. So I think I must have picked this up, and so I was. You know, had my like dream job working in games, absolutely loving it. Young, free and single, <laughs> living in London, working yeah. in Soho, just awesome. And But in the you know, evenings and weekends, I was actually spending all my time playing Knights of the Old Republic because um, it just absolutely sucked me in. And I can't say I'd particularly got into uh, RPGs prior to that point. Um, but, the, uh, you know, I, I'm a massive Star Wars fan. And so this was... The first Star Wars game, other than maybe some of the the X Wing games, which I, I also absolutely adored, but games like you know, uh, I think was it Jedi Knight and things like that, they were they were yeah. good, but they didn't quite capture the magic of the universe. Mm. It was more just an excuse to shoot someone in the face <laughs> with a, swing a lightsaber. Yeah. Absolutely, and you know, quite unsatisfactorily swing a lightsaber. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, I enjoyed them because as a fan, and they were really well made games. But this this game uh, by Bioware was just it was just really, really magical. And the music was a big part of that. And so I, th- I think I'm right in saying that um, there was a mixture of licensed stuff from um, from the from the, the known Star Wars film universe, mm. plus the original score by, by Jeremy Sewell. And th- what's interesting is, I w- again, this is this is an earworm. So the, the track that I've picked, it's it's the menu music. It's the f- it's there's, I think there's a little loading screen bit of music in the game. But then once you're into the menu. Uh, you you hear this track and it's brilliantly brilliantly atmospheric and really just sets this tone because it's dark. It's quite obviously related to the Emperor's theme in Star Wars without being like a horrible. It's not like a horrible pastiche. No, no. it takes elements of that, like um, the 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 men's choir doing their sort of ominous mm, humming in the background. Uh, at least I think that's in this track. It's what it makes me think of, even if it's not there. Might just um, be conjuring it. I might just, yeah, I just might be imagining it. But in my head, that's what I hear because, again, that that there's this this there's the theme that's the that just goes yeah. round and round in my head. It doesn't go anywhere. Like it doesn't develop in the way that Jamie Soul's theme does. I just have that stuck in my head. Um, I can't think of examples of when that happens. It's just I just know it's one of it's my just ear the soundtrack ones. to your day. It's the dark, breathing soundtrack <laughs> to my day when you're um, doing force powers. And that. <laughs> <laughs> now, but what's interesting about this is that if I listen to the soundtrack to this game, even though I've got super fond memories of the experience and of the music and acknowledging, like it's rare that I play a game and just think wow, this is awesome and this music is great and it's all just a great experience. But I can, I've can, i had that feeling and that, you know, that's not a subconscious thing, that's like a conscious, like taking a moment to like check yourself type feeling. Yeah. Um, and I had that playing Knights of the Old Republic. And so I know that Jeremy's music 
um, was wonderful and was a big part of that. But having said that, when I went back to listen to it recently, I really didn't recognize hmm. any of it at all. Like none of it, none of it was familiar to me other than this one thing. And I do think that this track is quite different to a lot of the other music in the game. And I have a theory, <laughs> which is that perhaps this was um, one of the first things that was written for the game. And perhaps it was written specifically for the menu music. Right. Um, just because I think that that is, it feels like it's a really brilliantly, it feels like it represents something in the game. In the way I was talking about, you know, trying to write the, the, the menu music for a little big planet, sure. trying to represent the experience. It feels to me like this does that brilliantly. And so whether it was written for the menu music or not, or was later uh, written and then applied to the menu music because it felt like it represented the project, in a weird sort of way, whilst it does represent the heart of the project, I don't think it's representative of the score overall. Um, and that's why this is stuck in my head and all the other music has just left me. <laughs> it's gone. Mm. Um, but I think it's a brilliant theme. I think it's um, really, it's, it's, it's incredibly Star Wars-y. And uh, like I say, it's not a pastiche. It just seems to manage to fit into that universe. And yet it's not written by John Williams. And I think that's, you know, that's an amazing achievement. Um and yeah, I, I just love it. So let's have a let's have let's have a listen. So that's Inside the Sith Base from Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic by Jeremy Sewell. You were talking there about making music that uh, that is that sounds like Star Wars, but that is not um, mm. John Williams. I recently was lucky enough to have the three composers from Halo Wars 2 on, Gordy Hab, Brian yeah. Lee White and Brian Trifon. And Gordy uh, has worked on uh, Star Wars Battlefront. Yeah, yeah. and he got yeah. to do exactly that. Uh, and when I said, uh, you know, would he be interested in following the likes of Michael Gacchino into um, making music <laughs> for Star Wars films? He said, yeah, I could, that would that would yeah, be all right. Quite good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, got, yeah, Gordy did an amazing job on Battlefront. I think uh, it was uh, it's really, really Im impressive, um, basically. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, knowing your limitations, that's not a job I could do. You right. know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't know if there's many people who could do a soundtrack for Tearaway, but I know for a fact no. I couldn't do a Star Wars game. Um, I think it's really important as a composer to know uh, what your strengths are because a lot of mis a mistake that a lot of composers make is they just try and, they're trying to get every gig or at least they don't want to like, they want to try and attract everyone in attempt to get work because it's so hard to get 
work yeah. and to get paid to write music that people do tend to present themselves as being able to do everything and what mm. composers need to know is that audio directors know that that is total and utter <laughs> nonsense yeah um it's just it's just not the case and so sure if you if you don't mind working with developers who don't know that that's limiting yourself to people who aren't that switched on and that's fine for paying the bills but those aren't people you want to work with mm. you want to work with people who are working on interesting projects you really ultimately the reason you would get picked as a composer is because you are good at something that you bring to the table that that project needs and that's how you get that kind of gig and that's why Gordy Hab got that gig like yeah. um, I think he was also had worked on with LucasArts or with Bioware on was it um, The Old Republic am I, yes. am I right in saying I think that's so right, like yeah. he had some familiarity with the Star Wars universe already, so he he had a track record there. But also, I don't know if you you know this. There was a there was a story uh, at the Gang Awards, which is the Game Audio Network Guild, um, sort of a it's audio centric uh, game audio centric award ceremony that takes place at GDC each year. Um, mm. And so it's quite insular in the sense that everyone knows everyone, yeah. but it's, you know it's got all those like niche categories like best interactive score, which in, in a bigger award show. Um, you just tend to have best music or best audio yeah. and that's it so mm. we have all these other like specialist awards mm. and so um, Battlefront obviously an amazing sounding game and they picked up a bunch of awards I think that was last year 2016 and uh, Gordy got on stage to collect an award or two for, for his contributions and he said this really nice story where he got that gig uh, in large part because someone else who had been asked to do it passed and said you don't want me you want Gordy Hab oh. And that was Chance Thomas, who's another amazing uh, video game composer, who's, mm. who's who's very well known. And um, and so you know, all credit to Chance. Like um, he had obviously uh, knew th what I mean. And and Chance is an amazing, you know, orchestral composer. So, but even then, I think knowing what a big deal this was, and yeah. you know, the fact that it was coming out in the time frame with the movies and all the rest of it, it was like you know, you need you need this guy, and. Uh, so, you know, that's that's obviously quite an unusual situation for a yeah. composer to pass on a job. Amazing, but yeah. again, I think, you know, like, yeah, so all credit to Chance and, you know, all credit to Gordy for doing such an amazing job on that project because uh, wouldn't it have been rubbish if he'd screwed it up? <laughs> it would have been disappointing to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So next up, we have a piece from a score of yours that's probably less widely known um, because this comes from a game which is a virtual reality only. Virtual reality, yes. Yeah. So it's um, Tethered is the name of the project. It's a it's a strategy game, which it turns out is actually a... That genre has not had a happy home on console because obviously on PC it's, it's mouse-driven and it needs that level of interaction with the screen because of all your little units doing things around the map, etc. Normally on, so, yeah. Yeah, and on, on a console, you know, that can translate, but it's just a lot harder with a control pad than it is with the fluidity and ease of selecting pixels with a mouse. Yeah, And um, in VR, the ability to select stuff through gazing at stuff um, hmm. addresses that to, to, to a large extent. And also you've obviously got the amazing immersive qualities of being immersed in the world and you get much more of a sense of a kind of a tabletop gaming experience where you've got your all your characters and your, your troops down below you. So yeah. um, VR is a great fit for the strategy genre. And um, it's tethered. It's made by a company... Uh, in England, north of England, called Secret Sorcery, who's made up of some ex-Evolution Studios. Sony's uh, sadly closed yeah, the racing studio. Sadly departed, yes. But, yeah, the, but the, the talent lives on. That's, lives what, on. that's the Absolutely. one thing we always try to stress, which is that uh, yeah, you know, studios not, are, the name of a studio is not necessarily the most relevant thing. Yeah, 
And so there's people like uh, Scott Kirkland, who was, I think, tech director at um, at Evo. He is the uh, managing director and one of the amazing coders there. Uh, but I also work closely with a chap called Alan McDermott, who is uh, was audio director at Evolution Studios, and but is the creative director at Secret Sorcery. So that was that's quite an unusual. Uh, and brilliant opportunity for me. Uh, I was hired as the composer. I went through, so I was on the other side of the fence this time. I went through a pitching process mm. and had to write music, a little demo for them. And I was fortunate enough to be picked to do that. And at the point I then came to work with them, they presented me with a slightly different uh, scenario than what they'd originally asked me to do for the the pitch. Not so much in terms of the the, the, the music, but the Alan had this idea, and again, as a as an audio director, he was thinking a lot about audio more so than a creative director normally would. And they had this problem whereby they were really trying to stay away from using um, uh, visual user interface elements because it's slightly clunky in VR to have yeah, of course. HUD elements. It sort of betrays the sense of presence. There's also potential to make people sick. Uh, yep. uncomfortable if the visual elements are too big etc etc so there's all these problems that were pushing them away from using that and Alan asked me if I would um, use sound and music to communicate information to the player and replace a lot of that visual stuff I see. so the project was really interesting for me because I basically came up with an interactive music system that would allow us to play back music stingers that the player would come to learn and associate with key gameplay events and they would play back on top of the music uh, but they would be play back in time with the music and play back uh, consonant and harmonious with the underlying chord progressions in the music. So there was this whole sort of technical side to getting that to work. I prototyped it in Unreal in their blueprint system. They implemented it in C++. It was, the end result's awesome. I'm really pleased with it. But um, So I kind of moved from just being the composer to, again, uh, drawing on my background as a game developer and um being i did a lot i did most of the sound in the game alan handled the ambiences i did all the i did everything else basically so sound guy again, yeah sound sound guy and um this track it's kind of hard to pick a track which represents the soundtrack um but there's elements in here which i think it's got a lot of it in there and one is that the main instrument is the nickel harper which is a swedish folk instrument um it's kind of mad it's like a cross between a uh, a violin and a typewriter <laughs> in the sense that it does yeah. sound quite like a fiddle, but it's got this clickety-clackety uh, primitive sound because it's you actually play it through these little wooden keys mm. that press the string rather than your fingers pressing them, mm -hmm. but it's bowed. And it's also got these 12 sympathetic strings which just resonate yeah. and give it a kind of angelic, ethereal, otherworldly sound. So it's got that in there, but then it's also got um, sort of... a I'm playing a string quartet alongside it. So I bought a cello for this project. Oh, and love a bit of cello. Yep. Yeah, so we've got that with the two violins and the viola. And then there's other some orchestral elements come in too. So yeah, this is this is this is the one track I picked to summarize the the soundtrack in Tethered.
And that was Some of Us May Fall by our guest, Kenny Young, Kenneth C. M. Young. Uh, you can find that game. Uh, is it is it available? It's available since February, isn't it? I thought I thought it was on it came out. Yep, it came out on originally on the PlayStation VR back in October, a week after that system. Oh, launched. okay. And there's right. a free demo, so if you've got a PSVR, then if you haven't checked it out, then please do. Uh, and it came out yeah in the middle of February for for Vive, and it's on available on Steam, and it's also available uh, on the Oculus Store as well. Excellent. Check it out. Good stuff. So earlier we were talking about you not only composing but also curating for Little Big Planet 2, which I can now yeah. say again, which is a, an advantage. Uh, and so one of the pieces that you uh, – well, this is a composer that you, you hired specifically yeah. to do a job, right? Winifred Phillips. Yeah, so Winifred, um, you'll know her music. She worked in the original God of War game. Uh, yes. That was a team of – I think it was about seven people in that. Uh, it was another big composer team effort. but. Um, one of the reasons I hired Winifred was that she she has the capacity to use her own voice in her music. She's a she's a singer, yeah. And um, if you if the, if you hear a, a woman singing in the God of War soundtrack, pretty sure I'm right in saying that that is Winifred, right? If you hear a solo part, mm. and that'll be that'll be her tracks. Um, and so that was the, that was really the reason I hired her is because. So I was putting together this team of composers, myself and six others, and essentially it was like one composer for each. Not one composer for each theme, but so Winifred did two tracks, and the ones I I wanted her to do were the ones that had female protagonists in terms of the narrative. So she did Eve's Asylum and uh, Victoria's Lab, and so I was looking for her to use her voice to personify the womanly nature of those characters. Yeah. Um, and so that that was kind of that was the brief was I wanted her to use her voice in the tracks and for for this track which is victoria's lab um again and it's an earworm for me so this the, there's one particular part she wrote which is uh, a fugue like and so a fugue's a, a a musical form that's typically associated with the organ where you have a, a leading line which is like the melody and then all the other parts are also playing the melody so the closest thing for most people to think of would be if you remember when you were at nursery school singing around like uh, you know london's burning so in a way, that's like a very, very, very simple fugue. Um, the musical form itself is is like insanely complex. And it's one of those things as a music student, you sort of fail, <laughs> fail to write yeah, yeah. when you're learning composition sure. stuff. But um, so this it's, it's, it's fugue-like. It's not actually technically a fugue, but it's got, it sounds a bit like that. And yeah. uh, But Winifred's doing it in a kind of a, like a, I think of it as in like a 1960s way because it's uh, her singing it. And there's lots of other vocal elements in here. There's the leading line, which is she's singing, but then there's also lots of fun kind of beatbox-esque uh, vocal sounds yeah. in there. And so it's got a lot of personality. Um, that's what you know I looked for uh, from the Little Wig Planet games and from other composers to try and bring a bit themselves to it. And, uh, and Winifred brought that in spades on both of our tracks and they're both absolutely amazing. But this one I think is particularly, it's an impressive piece of composition that she managed to sort of get all these parts working together and yeah, it, it, it stuck in my head. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that, Winifred. Thank you. 
So Victoria's lab laboratory, lab, I was, am, I, am I saying it the English way or the American way? I think lab, laboratory is the American way. Is it lab, 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 I'll not, I'll not do any accents. Laboratory. No, Kenny, stop it. <laughs> anyway, Winifred, as well as having uh, won tons of awards for her mm. uh, achievements, she's also written a book, A Composer's Guide to Game Music. Yeah. yeah, it came out a few and years back. Is, it, is, it, is that some sort of Bible for... Uh... Yes, and I should say, you know, like there's, there's, there's quite a few books available now for writing game music. Um, but the two I'd recommend are Winifred's book, but also Chance Thomas, who I, I mentioned earlier in terms of yeah. the Gordy Hab story. Um, they're both, you know, very experienced working professionals. And so they bring that to the table in a way that um, not all the people who've written <laughs> books about writing music for games necessarily do, which isn't to say the ones aren't good, but, you know, if you're going to spend your money, and these books aren't cheap, if you're going to spend your money, uh, I'd buy one by one of these professionals because not only are the books good, but uh, they really know their stuff, uh, not just from the music point of view, but obviously the business side of things as well. And that's a huge part of being a uh, a working composer is that you can't just be good at writing music. You've got to be able to win business and to keep clients happy. So, yeah, I could absolutely recommend uh, Winifred's, for Winifred's book. Um, it's it's great. Excellent. Sound advice. I know we do have a lot of uh, budding... Uh composers and and uh, people who want to break into the industry so that's great advice listeners 
Remember, please do venture over to our forum, canarince.com slash forum, or you can follow us on Twitter at canarince. You use the hashtag sound of play. We'll try to remember that you've uh, you've sent us something relating to this particular bit of podcast or on a Facebook page. Uh, and you can request your favourite tunes or other oddities. And we'll continue to include a selection in the playlist for each regular sound of play. But as I say, not when we have a composer on, they get to pick all of them. Uh, I'm sure you understand. Please. Yeah, you have you have the power. When we have a name on, a name. Uh, please subscribe to Sound of Play on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and leave us a review or rating as well. Sound of Play has recently been moving up towards the upper echelons of the charts and uh, reviews and subscriptions help that process. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Kane and Rince. We don't pay our guests, Kenny will tell you that, but uh, our time <laughs> This costs... is costing me money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his time is money. Um, we cost other people money, but uh, but our time also costs money, So um, as does all the equipment and uh, software and hardware and everything that goes into making Kane and Rince and Sound of Play. So patreon.com slash Kane and Rince, you can donate a dollar a month or whatever you can afford and it all gets ploughed back into making all these podcasts that we make so before we hear about this last track and we've got a real treat lined up i want to thank kenny for being an amazing guest on sound My of pleasure Play. thank you very much for inviting me it's uh well I, i'm looking at the clock man i love to talk but uh yeah it's uh, it's it's nice to uh, indulge in it's not something i get to do that often to go down uh, yeah. memory lane and just absolutely you know, and hopefully it's interesting for people as well. Our pleasure. Uh, no, if the, the, the best kind of guest is a talkative guest. Uh, <laughs> always better that way around than, than trying to pull teeth. Absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, have you got anything? Obviously, you know, your work is out there and available for people to buy and play and listen to. But is there anything in particular that you want to point people towards at anything this time? Anything to pimp? Um Unfortunately, none of the projects we're working on at the moment are either coming out soon or announced, so I have sure. to just sit on those. But yep. maybe one thing I'll mention is I recently got involved with something called the Audio Mentoring Project. So if, as you say, you do have quite a lot of people who are aspiring composers, um, check out audiomentoring.com. It is intended for people who are at a certain point in their career, maybe they are uh, students or coming towards the end of their studies and are looking for some advice on not how to do game audio. It's not an education program. It's a voluntary thing run by game professionals to try and help the next generation of talent um, just get their leg in the door in the industry, give them some advice. So it's basically a hookup site. It's like a dating site for mentors <laughs> Tinder and mentees. For, right. Tinder, Tinder for game audio people. So we, Not um, it's it's something that we announced uh, uh, a couple months ago just before GDC. And I'll be honest, at the moment, we're completely drowning in applications. Uh, so we're in the process of just trying to... We, the, basically, the, it's been really successful, but we don't have enough people to sort of... Um, to get to make the the wheels to grease the wheels and make it actually work so we're slowly getting through applicants and unfortunately rejecting people but also hooking up uh people who've applied to be mentees with people who've applied to be mentors and so it's a beautiful thing um if you're at that stage in your career where you think you um you you know for a fact that you want to work in game audio and you've already been trying to educate yourself for a few years and you're at that point where you think you're going to try and actually start getting work or you don't know how to do that by all means uh, apply to be a uh, a mentee and at the very least of you know the worst thing that can happen is we say no but if you're lucky then maybe we'll hook you up with a professional who can give you some advice so yeah that's that's a thing absolutely excellent really good uh, good to hear about that now to close our show 
this is a this is a piece that we've featured before, but not in this format because we have, thanks to Kenny, a little exclusive. So, what's the story behind this? So basically, uh, after um, so I left Media Molecule in well, technically I, I I left in February 2015, but I stayed on for um, six months to ship uh, Terry Unfolded. Um, but then at that point, you know that was kind of the end of my opportunity to work with Brian because I was no longer an opportunity to hire him because I was now <laughs> on the freelance market myself, um, trying to trying to win gigs as a as a composer and sound designer. Um, and so, but Brian and I, like I say, we were, we were really good friends. And so we're looking for opportunities to do stuff together. So with Media Molecules Blessing, we'd, uh, it's something we'd done on a small scale before at the, at the launch party for Tearaway Unfolded. We did a little live set of uh, the, the Tearaway soundtrack. Um, and so we, we did some, I think it was with the Gibbet Hill tracks, um, which mm. we sort of basically performed live with the backing track. But then Brian, uh, I think just because he was bored in his hotel room <laughs> and on the flight <laughs> and the way older, had done some quick and dirty remixes, uh, more with the mind for a party and for people dancing. And so we, we did a little sort of 10, 15 minute version of that uh, at the launch party. And then we were looking for an opportunity to just sort of do that again basically so we we wrote off to a few different conferences and said hey would you like us to play at your party and <laughs> you know most nice. of, mostly it was tumbleweed <laughs> but um the nordic game festival uh were like yeah awesome sounds good so we did a little live set uh last year at the nordic game festival in uh, malmo in sweden and uh it put together this thing for i think we played for about 45 minutes basically and so it was a little ableton live set where we just sort of took uh some of our tracks from Tearaway and Tearaway Unfolded and uh, just mashed them up <laughs> basically and then jumped around on stage like plonkers and for some of the tracks I was playing my uh, my fiddle yeah I saw I've seen some footage there's some yeah. footage out there on the internet uh, you're in your Tearaway masks and you look like you're having a fantastic time yeah it was really good really good fun so it was just really just an excuse for Brian and I to get together and have fun basically and f- do a little project so I went over to he, he was over here for a couple of days before we went just to sort of practice the set um and yeah, it was it was really good fun. And so this is one of my tracks that I'd remixed. Um, and it is it's, it's Renaissance Hop, but not as you know it. And that's already probably the the most earwormy thing I've ever written. Yeah, I'll go <laughs> along with that. <laughs> it's super super repetitive. Apologies, it probably gets stuck in people's heads. So this is yeah, this is this is my remix, and it's quite. I think it's it's if I've ever written anything euphoric. <laughs> This is it. So I think it's a nice one to end on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good fun. Take it away, Kenny. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Sound of Play. Thank you.
Oh, 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 oh,